For the past couple of years, relations between law enforcement and African Americans has been a major public policy quandary throughout Missouri. And State Representative Shemed Dogan has some specific ideas on how to bridge the gap. The Baldwin Republican joins us on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. I say, hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio in St. Louis is... Colleague Joe Manis. And returning to our show for the second time, we have as our special guest... State Representative Shamed Dogan. Now, before we delve into too many issues, just explain to our listeners uh, your district and if in case anyone has forgotten or doesn't know. Yes, I represent the 98th District, which is parts of St. Louis County, um, Baldwin, Ellisville, Fenton, and Wildwood. So this is election season, but we wanted to have the representative on because he's been at the center of several high-profile public policy debates. So this is going to be a bit more public policy heavy, but we are going to get to elections near the end, which I'm sure the representative is super excited about. (laughs) He's got this look on his face. It's it's just a look of of unmitigated joy. (laughs) So one of the things that, that caught my attention is you recently had an editorial in the National Review about policing and uh, the relationship between police and the African-American community. So before Mm -hmm. I paraphrase it, I would like you to kind of explain what your thought process was behind this and and why you decided to write that. Sure. And uh, I was very proud that article was reprinted uh, just this week in the St. Louis American as well um, and some other places here in Missouri. And my impetus for writing it was the fact that we had just this terrible week uh, last month where we saw Um, Alton Sterling, uh, Philando Castile both uh, get killed by police. And then just on the heels of that, we saw that uh, terrible massacre in Dallas with those officers being uh, massacred, as well as uh, really close to home, literally for me, um, less than a mile from my house, um, Officer Mike Flamion being shot and wounded. And so I just wanted to kind of process my own thought process uh, because I think there was a lot of um, false dichotomies that people put out there. You either have to be pro-police, not critical of them at all, or you have to be um, so skeptical of police that you essentially criticize their legitimacy. Um, and so what I wanted to do was talk about um, really just reforms that we could institute to increase people's confidence in police again, um, things that will help the African-American community, but also help our police officers be protected because nobody wants to see them harmed or targeted in any kind of way. I mean, do you think that the debate, and we're going back even a couple years, has lacked nuance sometimes uh, because while um, there are legitimate concerns about uh, relations between the police and not just African-Americans, but 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 between various ethnic groups, um, there also is a legitimate issue that we need police. Right. You know, police are needed to, you know, protect people. And, um, and, and it's really a uh, high-risk profession. And the people who go into it do deserve, as a whole, a lot of respect. They do. And um, I think that some of the blame here uh, falls on the media, you know, not talking about you guys individually, but the media, of course, feeds on conflict. And when you see people, you know, shouting, you know, F the police and all these kind of inflammatory statements about police, that gets a lot of play, especially on Fox News, especially on 
um, you know, conservative radio and whatnot. And so you have this stereotype, I think, among too many conservatives that all black people hate the police and don't want them protecting their communities. Um, and then I think on the other side, you see a lot of um, misconstrual of some of these police shootings. You know, most police shootings, when they happen, turn out to be justified. Um, it is a small portion of them that are the ones that get highlighted on uh, social media and whatnot. But I think you have a lot of people who have this narrative that, oh my gosh, the police are out there just trying to mow down black people, which is not, you know, no police officer wakes up in the morning and says, hmm, who am I going to murder today? I thought the uh, unrest in Milwaukee by the police shooting a few days ago was rather intriguing because both the um, person who was shot and the police officer were African-American. So it it wasn't even a racial thing, yet it prompted all these protests. I'm not saying whether they were good or bad. I'm just making a general observation. I I thought that kind of was showing a different angle of all this. That's right. And I think um, it, it's really hard to know what's happening on the ground in a community like that, because I think there were rumors uh, from people that the, the person had been shot in the back and it was completely unjustified. But then the police came out in short order and said, no, this guy was carrying a weapon. And they and had video. There's body camera footage, which I hope they put out sooner rather than later. I don't think we've seen that yet. Um, but I think it's really instructive. Um, one, the fact that there is body cameras uh, apparently in that department, which I think we need more of here in Missouri, um, as well as the fact that if you have that information, I think the, the public needs to be shown that information as, as soon as possible. Now, one of the things that you did in your article, besides express more nuance, as, as Joe mentioned, was list a bunch of policy proposals that you think would be useful. One of the things that I've noticed is that since Michael Brown was shot and killed in Ferguson, a lot of states have passed, quote unquote, Ferguson or post-Ferguson changes to criminal justice, including a lot of red states like Texas and Colorado, which is more purplish. I think that from my perception, while there is Senate Bill 5 that passed and the son of Senate Bill 5 that passed this year, uh, Missouri hasn't been as active as far as legislation goes. I mean, you're in there. You probably have your own perception. What do you say to people that say that Missouri hasn't really acted that much since Ferguson? Yeah, I certainly feel uh, some of those same frustrations uh, because I had a couple of quote-unquote Ferguson-related bills that I tried to get through. One of which I talked about in my National Review article was um, having independent investigations whenever there are officer-involved deaths. Um, and that doesn't only include incidents like a shooting. It includes things like um, the kid who drowned on the Lake of the Ozarks mm -hmm. uh, a couple years back. Um, where it turned out that there was a, a cover-up there um, and some questionable behavior and bad training on the part of the Water Patrol. Um, and also things like um, looking at police unions and the power that they have, um, because at the end of the day, the public needs to know that when there is wrongdoing, um, that the officer's going to be punished um, and that there's going to be justice um, if there's a victim involved. And right now, I think unions often stand in the way of those types of reforms and that kind of accountability. Now, you voted for Senate Bill 5, is that that's, correct? That's right. There were some within the, the Black Caucus in the Missouri House and and some Democrats as well who didn't end up voting for it because they- Ex Explain to our listeners Senate Bill Senate 5. Bill 5 is a, is a multifaceted bill. It makes a bunch of changes to the municipal court system. It also put in a dual 
fine revenue cap. That said, and some of that got tossed out. Some by of the that courts. got, got uh, tossed out by the courts, but it's still in litigation. That, as it was written, St. Louis County cities could only derive 12.5 percent of it, their budgets from fine revenue. The rest of the states would get 20 percent. It was basically an add-on of an existing law known as the Max Creek Law. I, I think that I'm explaining that correctly. I think that the the criticism of Senate Bill Five that came out was that that 12.5 percent didn't really impact wealthier municipalities in St. Louis County, which have other sources of revenue, but still collect a lot of fine revenue, like Chesterfield, Maryland Heights, Ladue, Clayton, Town and Country. But it it, it basically put into jeopardy a lot of these African-American-run municipalities in North County. I'm sure you heard those argumentations. What's kind of your thoughts as, as someone who used to you know, be a councilman or an alderman in Baldwin? Well, Baldwin's a community that what a, whatever the, that threshold is, we weren't anywhere near it. Yes. Um, but the treatment of St. Louis County different than the rest of the state um, is certainly something that I think a lot of us who represent St. Louis County um, could kind of agree with. We voted for it anyway because that was really the only way politically to get it through the legislature. Um, but I, I think a lot of these municipalities are just self-serving in their opposition to SB5. Um, I think they have a revenue source that they've been relying on for years and years, and they just don't want to see that go away, plain and simple. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't care enough about their residents who've been complaining about these practices of people writing tickets for profit rather than for public safety. But do you think that those those other cities I mentioned don't use the revenue that they get from fines? We're talking like they get a million or a million and a half if they're larger cities, yet they're not affected by this law at all. Like, but they also one of the reasons for that is that they have a lot more traffic. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a big difference between a Chesterfield, which has miles and miles of roads, mm-hmm. uh, compared to some of these little cities in North County where they literally have a square mile and maybe a little bitty, you know, portion of Highway 70. Yeah, yeah, or or I 70. And I mean, because there was a couple of the small municipalities that came under fire because they had speed cameras over there, like a hundred yard uh, piece of. 170 that went through their but, but municipality. What, yeah, but you mentioned independent investigations as opposed to independent prosecutors. Could you elaborate on that? Because that was actually a policy proposal that was put forth in the Ferguson Commission report along with independent prosecutors. But it seems like that one may not be getting as much attention. Kind of explain why you think that would be a good and thing. And the difference. Sure. Um, the difference between those two is when you have an independent prosecutor, if you have a situation anywhere in St. Louis County, you would be taking the hands of a prosecution out of the hands of the elected prosecutor, Bob McCullough, or an elected prosecutor anywhere else in the state, and you'd be assigning it potentially to someone else in an adjoining county or perhaps the attorney general's office. Yeah, I mean, the general uh, view from what I heard from other legislators is that generally this would be ending up in the AG's office. Right. And um, that's something that's just logistically tough to do, one, and then two, you really do um, undermine um, a lot of the role of an elected prosecutor. Um, People feel that if you are going to elect that person, if there are abuses, then that person is going to be able to be held accountable by the voters. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's that argument. Whereas with what I'm proposing, independent investigations, you're essentially addressing the issue of the conflict of interest the inherent conflict of interest of having an agency that employs an officer investigating that same officer. Yeah. So would this be like the Missouri Highway Patrol or maybe, let's just say in St. Louis County situation, if it was a municipal police department that was involved in a police-involved killing, maybe St. Louis County would take that over or something like that? Any particular agency you have in mind? 
the legislation as I've written it is pretty broad. It it does not specify what agency has to take over it. It can be an adjoining county. Um, in the case of rural areas, maybe they could go to an, a more urban department that has more experts in those areas. Um, I tried not to hamstring mm-hmm. um, those investigations in that way. Um, and what they've done in Wisconsin, the first state that did this type of law, they ended up having mostly their attorney general's office do those investigations kind of on a statewide basis. Mm-hmm. Um, I might I might imagine that might, might be where we end up, mm-hmm. but you know, you'd really have to play it out here in Missouri and see what works out best for our our departments. Now, I'm not sure if this was part of your op-ed, but one thing that you were outspoken about earlier this year was how you feel that the state's racial profiling report needs to be changed pretty dramatically. So can you just like tell our listeners what this racial profiling report is and why you feel it's inadequate? Sure. Missouri's racial profiling law was passed in 2000 um, after Illinois passed theirs, I think under the leadership of Barack Obama when he was in the state Senate there. And uh, rather than just kind of take anecdotally people's reports of racial profiling, we decided as the show me state to back those reports up with statistics. And uh, every department is required to track their uh, stops, their traffic stops um, by race. And so we have an index that they put together that shows uh, the percentage of minority group members who are stopped versus uh, whites who are stopped, as well as the number of arrests, as well as the amount of contraband that's found when people are stopped. And what that report has told us over the past 16 years is that there is, in fact, a disparity. Um, When they started this, um, they found that African Americans were 33% more likely to be stopped than white drivers. And that disparity has gotten worse continually to the point now where African Americans are 66% more likely to be stopped than white drivers. I think that one of the problems with the report is it compared the amount of stops to the residential average of wherever was being being tracked. And one of the difficulties is that the residential demographics could be different than the demographics on the road, and there's really no way to track what the, the demographics on the road is. Is that kind of one of the problems with this report, as well as the fact that there's really no consequences of note when you get a high number or anything? Well, that observation, the, the demographics versus the people who drive through a community, That's true for individual communities, but you can't fudge that number statewide, Mm -hmm. right? So when you take that aggregate statewide and look at that number, I I think it's proof that there is something going on in terms of minorities being stopped for some reason other than their driving habits. Uh, But with that said, um, when we want to identify problem agencies, you know, if we want to say that this department might be engaging in racial profiling, um, you're correct that we do need to conduct further analysis um, of what those numbers look like of the, the population that not just lives there, but that drives through. And that's something that the bill that I wrote, um, the Fair and Impartial Policing Act, which Senator Nasheed uh, also introduced in the Senate, it addresses that very directly. Um, because I think uh, data is, is key. The more data we collect, the more refined we can make that data. And we're certainly working with the law enforcement community to talk about the types of data that they would like to collect that they think would be helpful. Um, I think moving that conversation forward is the way to go with this. In this conversation, now you're talking about, you know, some Democratic lawmakers who generally agree with you or at least are receptive to what you're talking about. Um, We're going to be having a new governor in a few months from either party. Do you have a sense of if you're going to be able to continue this discussion or is this going to be something that – may take a lot of persuasion, regardless of who ends up in the governor's mansion. 
Um, I did see uh, Chris Coster say that the legislature needs to make some changes to the law, um, some of which were kind of in the direction that I'm already heading, which was kind of encouraging. Um, I'd be curious to see if it gets brought up in the gubernatorial debates at all, um, or the attorney general's debates, since the attorney general is the one who puts this study out every year. But um, I do think there's going to be some common ground, both in the legislature as well as whoever's in the executive branch. We did ask uh, Josh Hawley about this exact topic when he was on Politically Speaking. This was before he won the Republican nomination to run for attorney general. He'll be running against Teresa Hensley. This is actually him responding to a clip from you about basically what you just said, that the racial profiling report needs to change. Here's what he had to say. I think I would have to undertake a review of the process as it currently stands and see how the law has been administered since it's been on the books and, and get a grasp of exactly what the report, I mean, obviously I've seen the report, but how is it being assembled? How is it being put into effect? And then what are the follow-ups? So I think it would be absolutely appropriate to initiate a review of that and uh, t to see if there are real-world practical steps that can be taken uh, to, make, uh, the, to make the report more effective. Look, this is something I think that probably needs to happen across the board. One of the other things I want to do as attorney general is initiate a review of state regulations that affect business and innovation in our state. So that's your party's nominee for attorney general. What do you have to, to say for his response to your concerns? I thought that was a decent response. Um, it, it is something that is going to require more than just sound bites. Um, you do really have to dig into, um, like he said, the data that's being collected, um, and what the response to that data is, which is currently nothing, <laughs> um, because there are no teeth in the law. Um, that's my main beef with the law right now. I mean, you could have a police department that year after year has an index that's showing that they're stopping minority drivers at 10 or 20 times what their population is, and there's no consequences. Mm -hmm. um, so th that's something I think at the end of the day, there have to be some consequences. We can haggle over what they're going to be and how we're going to get to those consequences. But having the law exist right now with no consequences, th there's no point. Yeah. So let's segue into another topic you've been involved in, and that's uh, photo ID. I almost said voter ID. Joe would have uh, uh, caused me to explain. Yes, just to, just to make it clear. Missouri has, and I'm not taking a stand on the issue, but mm -hmm. Missouri has voter ID. Voter ID. People have to show some sort of identification at the polls. The issue is photo ID. Yes. The advocates of photo ID believe that what Missouri Current has is not adequate to guard against fraud. And they want people to have to show a picture of themselves to verify that they are who they say they are. That's in a nutshell That's what right. we're talking Thank about. Thank you, Joe. So there is going to be a constitutional amendment on the ballot that would authorize a photo ID requirement for voting. But you are also involved in a statutory bill that I believe passed but was then vetoed and may come up during veto session. What was kind of your role in that? And what is kind of just your mindset behind this whole issue, which is going to be front and center in a couple of months when people go to the polls? Well, um, my role in that uh, was really tackling that legislative uh, piece of it, saying that if this passes, if the voters approve this photo ID a ballot initiative, what is that implementation going to look like? Um, and what are the requirements going to be? And when I came into the legislature a couple of years ago, um, I had some questions about um, the details of whether or not people who were uh, going to be required to get an ID, this new requirement, whether or not they would have to pay for it. Because I'd heard criticism uh, from Democrats and from others in the kind of civil rights community 
that this was a poll tax. We were going back and to that, the days of the poll tax. Which could be declared unconstitutional right. on a federal level. Okay, go ahead. And that's been one of the reasons that this, these types of laws have been struck down in other states. And so what I did, I got together with some of my colleagues and uh, put an amendment in there saying that if we're going to have this requirement, not only does the state have to pay for the cost of the ID itself, which they already had in the legislation, but we also have to pay for the cost of getting a birth certificate um, or a marriage license. You know, you heard situations where um, women would get remarried um, and they would have a different last name on their birth certificate than was on their current identification documents. And so I thought that you shouldn't be essentially giving people an unfunded mandate, um, telling them you, you're mandated to have an ID, but you have to pay for all the costs associated with it, which no other state has gone that far. I think this is the most generous photo ID uh, legislation that we've seen throughout the 50 states, and it's something that by no means can be cast as a poll tax. Now, why do you think that this is a necessary thing to have a photo ID requirement? It's common sense that you ought to be able to prove who you are to vote. Um, you don't want someone casting your vote in your place. You don't want somebody who's not eligible to vote showing up to the polls and voting on behalf of either someone else or someone who doesn't exist necessarily. Um, and I think that um, voter fraud is a real phenomenon. Um, you know, we can argue over how much it happens and what the easiest types of voter fraud are, but I think it's delusional to say that voter fraud is, doesn't exist. Um, and so this is a way to start combating that and to make sure that the current voter ID that we have now is a photo ID, which makes sense. Now, some critics have said for decades, ever since this issue came up, that, and in fact, it's true in this current proposed constitutional amendment, it doesn't deal with absentee balloting, and that absentee balloting has, over the course of decades, been the main source of voter fraud in Missouri. I mean, I, I'm old enough that I remember in the 70s and 80s when I was a young reporter, there was a number of cases where there were convictions, high-profile stuff, and it involved manipulating absentee ballots. And interestingly, this is coming up now with the Penny Hubbard-Bruce Franks race. I, I've talked with our guest before the show. He's not doesn't know that in great detail, but I'm just bringing that up right now. Right, but my point is, is that all this debate over photo ID doesn't really deal with absentee ballots because that people uh, who cast absentee ballots don't have to show a photo ID. I mean, like if you're somebody who's in a nursing home or, or if you're homebound or whatever. And the accusations have been for decades that some of these absentee ballots have been manipulated. Do you have any thoughts on ways to address that? Or do you think that that's kind of an overblown issue? Um, it's a legitimate issue for sure. I mean, the whole point of us doing photo ID is to protect the integrity of people's votes, to make sure that when you cast a vote that you're the only one casting it and that your vote's not being canceled out by other people. Um, and certainly tackling any potential abuses of absentee balloting um, is something we ought to take a look at. I haven't seen any proposals really on the table for that, um, and I, I kind of liken it to the debate over ethics reform. Um, where the Republicans were trying to pass ethics reform bills and the Democrats would step in and say, well, what about campaign finance reform? Well, let, let's deal with this issue separately. Let's talk about that on the merits, and then we can talk about that other thing in a, in a separate conversation. But I think when you link those two and say, well, you can't do this unless you do this, 
Um, I think that takes away from the merits of the photo ID conversation we're having right now. Now, some have contended that Republicans have been less resistant to absentee ballots uh, changes because they rely a lot on absentee ballots, and especially in rural areas. Where, where people are more likely to cast absentee ballots and, because it's farther distances from the polls and, and that sort of thing. I'm sure, as we have just alluded to, there are Democratic constituencies that rely on absentee balloting, too, but continue, John. Yeah, but, but, but my point is is that um, while in the urban areas it's the Democrats who, and there have been, like said, controversies going back decades, um, that some say that the Republican majority has been resistant to it because of the reliance on it in rural areas. I mean, because Republicans generally put out these upfront appeals in election year telling telling rural voters to make sure they cast an absentee ballot if they're not going to be around election day. Because some of them have to go fairly decent distances to polling places otherwise. Did you hear any of that during the, this past debate at all? I didn't really. Um, we didn't really have that much focus on the absentee issue. Um, I heard maybe one or two people raise it, but I didn't see any legislation on it. But do you think that, okay, well, obviously, we got to see if this constitutional amendment passes or this this statutory bill gets overridden, which are not sure things yet. But do you think that that could be the next step next year of looking at absentee balloting and, and the processes that go, go behind it? Yeah, certainly, um, because it is kind of an odd um, requirement that we have where you have to say that you're going to be out of town or there's a list of maybe five or six other things where you can get an absentee ballot. Um, I think it's certainly worthwhile looking at, is there any way that we verify someone when they say that they have this reason uh, for requesting an absentee ballot? Do we want to keep it the same way where it's kind of like no questions really asked? Or do we want to go forward and say that we're going to have some sort of strict proof that you really are out of town or that you really are yeah. you know, incapacitated or whatnot? Well, one of the things that I think has come up in this Hubbard Frank situation, and again, I'm not going to ask you to go on the details of that situation, but this has been brought up, is that one of the one of the concerns people have of questioning the motivations behind absentee balloting, that is, if you go from person to person and ask, why did you vote for an absentee ballot for some reason, it kind of smacks as of voter intimidation. I've heard both people who are pro-Hubbard and even anti-Hubbard bring that up as this case unfolds. So is that one of the issues when you're dealing with policy, that when you start getting into people's motivations for for absentee balloting and actually following through on it, it does have that voter intimidation angle into it, basically? I could certainly see that. Um, but at the same time, um, you don't want to have a requirement there and just have people making stuff up. Well, and you also, though, have tens of thousands of people who cast absentee ballots and there have been some prosecutors who've said over the years that it's virtually impossible to go, you know, check out every person who says, uh, I mean, some of this is related to the fact that Missouri does not have early voting. Right. No fault early voting, and which over 30 states have. Missouri does not, which is a whole separate issue. Right. And we should definitely have that conversation. I mean, that's something that I'm definitely open to. If we want to talk about instituting a system of early voting, let's do that. But if we have a system of absentee voting, which is what we have now, we got to make sure that we're following that law. Well, and the reason I'm bringing up the absentee ballot, uh, the the absentee ballot uh, issue, is because in some states, this now is becoming part of the legal fight, and that some uh, people have filed suit saying that these photo ID requirements are unconstitutional 
because they don't also apply to absentee ballots. So in other words, if even if voters approve this in November, I have heard talk that there may be end up being a legal fight over this because it doesn't deal with absentee ballots. That's the reason I brought this. I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a legal fight regardless of this. I mean, in 2006, when this passed, there was an automatic legal challenge that was successful. I mean, do you kind of have expectations if the constitutional amendment passes and the the implementation bill gets overridden, there's going to be litigation over this? Oh, yeah. I'd imagine people are going to sue. I don't know what the basis might be. It could be some of the things you've mentioned. It could be something totally out of left field. Um, but I think what we've done, um, again, on the, the cost uh, portion of it, um, addresses one of the concerns that is uh, gotten those laws struck down in other states. Another comparison I want to make is um, uh, North Carolina's law, which was recently uh, struck down. They found that the North Carolina legislature had gone through and kind of specifically looked at ways in which African-Americans were casting their votes or certain forms of ID that African-Americans were using. They specifically requested that research and then put into their law that they were going to um, not allow those methods of early voting and not allow the forms of IDs that African-Americans used um, to be used. Um, there's nothing remotely like that in Missouri. Um, so the people trying to make the comparison between what we're trying to do in North Carolina is way off base. So let's segue into the topic I know you're the most excited to talk about, <laughs> uh, the political situation in Missouri and nationally. So unlike a lot of Missouri Republicans, you have pretty much steadfastly refused to endorse Donald Trump in any shape, form, or fashion. Is that accurate? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Not really. Well, I mean, at least explain to our listeners why you feel that way. It's, it's just depressing. This is uh, an unprecedented presidential election year. We have uh, the two most unpopular uh, nominees from both parties um, who are just widely distrusted and widely disliked. And um, I think I'm in pretty good company um, on the Republican side with being very disappointed at how our party chose. Um, but at the same time, there's no way I could vote for Hillary Clinton um, between all the reasons that she's distrustful, they seem to multiply um, every week. Um, so I'm just kind of depressed with the choices that we have in front of us. Well, you do have Gary Johnson and Jill Stein, and uh, the, there's like some other fake candidates that have been brought up. The, the gorilla that got shot in Cincinnati has been brought up as a candidate. Um, let's not even go there. Well, but Republicans <laughs> had tried, but it was it's pretty much scuttled. You know, to come up with some sort of alternate candidate. Um, that didn't happen, uh, you know, some sort of independent candidacy. Now, and voting is going to be starting shortly, within weeks, in a number of states. Um, how do you see some of this, this uh, playing out? Well, it, it remains to be seen. Um, I know there's a lot of swing states where there are key Senate races and key House races. Um, I, I worked for the NRSC, so I have a very keen interest in making sure that the Republicans hold on to the Senate, because regardless of who's president, you have to have uh, checks and balances on presidential power. I think we've had a lot of runaway executive power under uh, President Obama. Roy Blunt was in St. Louis this week and was asked by reporters whether he was going to continue to support Trump, regardless of all the things that he said and all the controversy that surrounds him. 
This is the full 50-second clip of him answering that question from reporters. I think if you're going to do something about the disastrous impact of Obamacare, regulators that are out of control, and a foreign policy where our friends don't trust us and our enemies aren't afraid of us, that the choice between Hillary Clinton to solve those three problems and somebody new, the Trump-Pence ticket, that this is clear that Trump and Pence would deal with those issues in a better way. Trump has talked about leaving NATO. I mean, are you, do you think that would help the issues that you're bringing up regarding foreign policy? No, I, I support NATO. But, you know, I don't expect Trump to be responding every day to whatever I say, and I'm not going to be responding every day to what he says. I think I gave you three good areas where I think a third Obama term would not be the best thing for the country, and I think that's what Mrs. Clinton offers. I think that exchange is telling because I think it's very emblematic of what Republicans are dealing with who are in competitive reelections or races. Every time Roy Blunt goes to any event with press, he's going to be asked, what do you think about Trump? You know, what did you think about what he said today? Can you still support him? And he's going to have to answer like he did just there. Now, one of the things I want to point out, and actually I'm working on a story about this, is that right now, Missouri is not a swing state. I mean, we all agree, correct? I mean, as as I mean, of now. As right. of now, Missouri is not considered a swing state by the presidential candidates. It is assumed that Trump will carry Missouri. Mm -hmm. The issue is by how much. However, I mean, some of the latest polls have shown it within just a few points. Again, I'm wary of polls in August, but that's a whole other show. But, but my point being that uh, right now, while Missouri voters may think they're seeing a lot about the presidential contest, you're not seeing any ads, folks. You are not seeing any of the ads that are running in other states by either candidate, mm -hmm. unless they run something nationally during the Olympics or which, something. Which they did. But but my point being, you're not seeing any state-specific ads. So, As a result that the U.S. Senate race is some is in some in Missouri, which is a key one, is in a different situation vis-a-vis -vis the presidential contest than in some other states. So I guess my question is, you, you know, candidates like Roy Blunt and Eric Greitens and maybe even some of the statewide candidates are going to have to deal with Trump on the ballot. What do, you, what do you think the impact of that is going to be? It, 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 with the backdrop, Joe just mentioned that right now Missouri is not a swing state. Yeah, the candidates aren't showing up here, or when they do come, they're not doing public events. I think it uh, it's like any other presidential nominee to some extent. Um, they're going to hurt you in certain areas, and they're going to be helpful to Republican turnout in other areas. Um, it would be nice uh, for the Trump campaign to really um, beast, boof, uh, to beef up their campaign a lot more. Um, across the country because I'm seeing these kind of disturbing reports of how many staffers Hillary has hired all over the country to help with these down-ballot races, and we haven't seen that same um, kind of staffing up on the, on the side of the Trump campaign. Um, so regardless of my personal feelings about him, I think he has to be helpful to the rest of the party. Um, if he expects loyalty from the party, he has to give that loyalty back. Yeah, from what I've read, the only places he's running any ads are like four swing states, yes. like Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Ohio, and maybe Florida. Now, if he was pouring money into Missouri, that would probably be a giant red flag that he's probably going to lose everywhere. Yes. But you're, you're basically saying like 
they need to put some money in Missouri because of these other races, which are so important. Is that fair to say? That's right. That's what the RNC does every four years. I mean, they support the party's candidates up and down the ticket. Well, is there any science the RNC isn't going to do this? I mean, the, the general, the conventional wisdom is that the Republican and Democratic senatorial campaign committees will be putting money in Missouri to um, help their nominees for the U.S. Senate. The issue is how much. Uh, the uh, Democratic and Republican Governors Association already have been putting money into Missouri. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, independent groups putting money in uh, on, on, on the side of various candidates. The assumption is that the DNC and the RNC at some point may be putting at least some in to help with the ground game. I mean, you're tied in. So are you? is that your understanding or is it relying on Trump to do this? Um, I, don't, I don't think Missouri, I mean, like you guys are saying, if Missouri is a swing state, then we're in a whole different situation. Um, but I'm not really even talking about Missouri specifically. I just mean some of these other swing states where there's not been enough activity or enough, there's been no ads run, there's not enough staffers on the ground. Um, I, I think Missouri, because we do have a governor's race and a Senate race, we're, we're going to have the troops necessary for those races. Um, but turnout usually is based on your presidential nominee in a presidential year. Yeah. Correct. Well, well, let me segue into that because that's probably probably more pertinent. I mean, the president, whoever the president is, is pertinent. But there are a whole bunch of statewide races and a U.S. Senate race going on. Are you comfortable with how the Republicans locally have kind of sorted everything out? And are you do you have a feeling that the ticket that emerged after the primary is able going to be able to be competitive in November? And if so, why? Yeah, I definitely feel really good about uh, the ticket that we've selected here. Um, I think up and down the statewide ballot, um, each one of those candidates either is favored in their race or they're within striking distance. Um, none of them are down in the polls to the point where you're like, oh, my gosh, that person's going to have a really tough time winning their race. Um, and I think they're all very credible candidates. Um, they've uh, in, in the ones that did have contested primaries, they were pretty hotly contested. Um, so I think they've been battle battle scarred. Um, so it's it's always tough when you have a primary in August to turn around and within two and a half months to, you know, reload in terms of finances and in terms of your ground game. But I think all those folks um, are going to have the capability to do that. Now, you were telling me before the show you didn't get involved in the gubernatorial race. You didn't endorse anybody. Greiton, Eric Greitens is the nominee for the Republicans. Have you talked with him? Do you have any impressions of him? And do you feel like after this four-way primary that divided the party, like quite literally, that uh, people are going to be able to rally around him? I, I think they will. Um, you know, I wasn't supportive of him necessarily in the primaries, um, but Eric is a really talented guy. Um, he's got a great resume. Um, I, I think regardless of what you thought about his TV ads, um, he has kind of a charisma and a leadership uh, capability that really comes across in those ads and comes across if you meet with him one-on-one. -on -one. Um, so I, I'm looking forward to seeing the kind of campaign he's going to run um, against Chris Coster, who is a career politician, um, who really um, has no principles other than kind of serving himself. He's a party of one, um, really. So I, I think that that contrast of someone who's been in the military, who served the public in a lot of different ways than we typically see in politicians, uh, versus a guy who's kind of the quintessential career politician, is going to be a good contrast for so, us. So you weren't a fan of him 
in his ads basically shooting a machine gun for 20 seconds while there was voiceover and nothing else. Now we're talking about Greitens. We're talking about Greitens. The the thing about those ads, if you had any doubt as to whether he supported the Second Amendment, I think he kind of erased those doubts. Although, interestingly, Coster may end up getting the NRA endorsement because he has a voting record and Eric Greitens doesn't. Would that be kind of, I don't know, what what message would that send after those ads came out? I think that would just send the message that the NRA prefers people who have held office to people who haven't. I mean, that's yeah. all that really says. Because because Coster got the endorsement in 2012 over Ed Martin, even though both probably have the exact same position on gun rights, basically. Yeah, well, and, you know, I think there's going to be – well, I don't want to segue into too much of that, but the, but I think there's going to be a lot of fallout over that in the governor's race. Yeah, we will get to that fallout when it comes, but we will let our guests go. He has been uh, very patient during our, our many technical difficulties. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And you can follow the representative on Twitter at... Dogan for rep D-O-G-A-N, the number four rep. And by the way, the technical difficulties that I was referring to, and it's not, it's been edited out of this show, is that In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins played randomly on my phone during the podcast. To play us out, here is that classic 80s hit. (laughs) 